Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 488 with my return guest, therapist Katie Vernoy. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This, I don't know if I pronounced my name right. I'm still, I'm still getting the hang of it. I am Paul Gilmartin, and this is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. More like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Mentalpod, also the social media handle. You can follow me at. Uh, let's dive right into some uh, some surveys. This is from the Happy Moment Survey, filled out by a woman who calls herself K Thriller, home of the twin gazebos. No fucking idea what that what that means. She writes, "I came downstairs yesterday, and my boyfriend was awkwardly lying on the couch reading." Belly hanging to the side, hair completely disheveled, and in that moment I thought, wow, you are seriously the most beautiful human being I have ever seen. Oh, I love that. I, just, I also love that somebody else has a big belly hanging off to the side. Oh, oh mine is growing like a hen sitting on an egg. This is also, uh, this is from the love survey. <laughs> filled out by a person who calls himself still drinking Corona beers and their loves, smelling candles in the store while deciding which ones to buy, opening the mailbox and it being empty, pulling into the pharmacy drive through and seeing no one else is in line. Oh, that is a great one. Thunder that's so loud it scares my dog and he comes to me for comfort. When my neighbors finally shut the fuck up. <laughs> oh, thank you for those. 
Our sponsor for today is BetterHelp.com. If you've never tried online counseling, I really, really suggest it. Um, there's so many great things about it. The convenience of it. Um, I find that it has all the intimacy of in-person uh, counseling. And of course, it depends on your counselors. And uh, BetterHelp has uh, really great counselors. And um, they they do a great job of trying to match you up with a counselor that they think is a good fit for you. And if you don't feel it's a good fit, you can always change counselors. But uh, if you want to know more, go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental part so they know that you came from this podcast. And then uh, just fill out a questionnaire. And if they feel that they have a counselor who's a good match for you, they'll match you up with one. And then you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you and you need to be over 18. Uh, and then this is from the love survey filled out by Atta Girl. And she writes, a few weeks ago in a survey you read, someone mentioned uh, Haruki Murakami. And it reminded me of my favorite quote from a book of all time. Uh, I feel as though this quote is so fitting to mental illness struggles in general, general, but also how we as a population are coping with this pandemic. This is from Kafka on the Shore by Haruki Murakami. I hope you enjoy it. Sometimes fate is like a small sandstorm that keeps changing directions. You change direction, but the sandstorm chases you. You turn again, but the storm adjusts. Over and over, you play this out, like some ominous dance with death just before dawn. Why? Because this storm isn't something that blew in from far away, something that has nothing to do with you. This storm is you, something inside of you. So all you can do is give into it, step right inside the storm, closing your eyes and plugging up your ears so the sand doesn't get in, and walk through it, step by step. There's no sun there, no moon, no direction, no sense of time. Just fine white sand swirling up into the sky like pulverized bones. That's the kind of sandstorm you need to imagine. And you really will have to make it through that violent, metaphysical, symbolic storm. No matter how metaphysical or symbolic it might be, make no mistake about it, it will cut through flesh like a thousand razor blades. People will bleed there, and you will bleed too. Hot red blood. You'll catch that blood in your hands, your own blood and the blood of others. And once the storm is over, you won't, you won't remember how you made it through, how you managed to survive. You won't even be sure, in fact, whether the storm is really over. But one thing is certain. When you come out of the storm, you won't be the same person who walked in. That's what this storm's all about. Every little thing feels like the end of the world. The darkness came so quickly. I was so fucking angry. Make me as close to dead as possible. And I felt so powerless. Without the commitment. If there's a word for it. Unbearable. It means somebody else felt this way. The feeling is so intense. It is a lot more work. I was frightened all the time. To feed a child's emotional world. Everyone feels pain. Than it is their superficial world. Everyone suffers. My sexual addiction was the shame. My mom ended up killing that woman in front of me and my brothers. I had to feel that shame in order to feel the pleasure. And I was being a dick to everybody. We are social beings. And the only way you're going to get it out is to cry. We need to be with people. I grabbed them by their throats and led them down to the floor and watched the breath leave their bodies. Maybe well, listen, thanks for coming in. 
I'm here with our three-peat guest, <laughs> therapist Katie Vernoy, and we were talking on the phone the other day, and we thought it would be good to get together and do a an episode uh, about the pandemic because I've I've been doing episodes about them based on the listeners' anonymous surveys, but. I thought it would be really great to get a, a therapist, you particularly, Aww, uh, thank you. as uh, I love having you on and the listeners love having you, um, to answer some questions about pandemic-related uh, stuff. So I put a question out to social media, um, got a nice response from people, and uh, do you want to you wanna start tackling some of them? Yeah, let's jump in. So the first question I find kind of hilarious and very tragic. What are some tools people can use to cope with having a sociopath malignant narcissist as president during a pandemic? (laughs) (laughs) And um, I don't know. I I think the, the short answer is I don't know. But I think oftentimes when we look to other countries, I've been especially impressed with New Zealand's Jacinda Ardern and looking at how they're handling it. There's a little bit of jealousy. Uh, there is also a, a hopefulness that humanity is not lost. And I think in truth, and this goes into the second part of that question, how many minutes of pandemic Trump news is healthy to watch or listen to each day? I think you got to minimize it. I think there's a lot of folks who have stopped watching the news and are much happier for it. I think there's... I would be I would be one of those. Yeah. I'll get the broad strokes sometimes, but as far as the press conferences, I don't... I don't watch them. And I think it's important to to um, separate the president's personality from his policies. And yes. not that I'm a fan of his policies, but expecting his personality to change is you are putting yourself through torture. Absolutely. And I think the if there's anything to be gained from looking at the policies, it would be just to stay informed. But you can also get those secondhand without having to listen to the exact words that he or somebody else is is saying. And I think that there are some really great places where you can get data versus news and, and the kind of the impressions of the news or those kinds of things. Certainly the CDC, the WHO, uh, you know, those kinds You're of You're talking th- about the band, the, the WHO? The band, yeah. We should only right. be listening to the WHO now. Mm-hmm. Um, but the World Health Organization and the CDC have data. They have suggestions for, for folks who are looking at trying to reopen businesses or trying to keep their, themselves and their families safe. So I think it's it's something where you can get your data, you can get the guidelines and in truth, I think the local guidelines are probably more impactful yeah. because it's whether you're sheltering in place or safer at home or opening up or on phase two or seven or, you know, whatever it is. I think those things are more helpful. And I think oftentimes, especially folks who are sensitive or who are well-educated or people mm-hmm. who are going to be watching these news and, and throwing their hands up and banging their heads against the wall. I think it's just not helpful. And I think there's something that I experienced. I had to turn off notifications on my phone for any of my news sources because mm-hmm. you know, I'll, I'll read the local newspaper on my phone. And it was 24-7 COVID co- coverage. It mm-hmm. was also because it was a need to like live in this news cycle, I found that it was so prurient and and so just it was do you know the word clickbait clickbait and and even like mainstream news sources were going deeper and deeper and down these rabbit holes to try to find an interesting story and it just was 
adding to this collective trauma and fear because it was like this one person had this one thing happen and oh my god you know and it's like calm down guys like let's let's pull back let's actually get to data let's get to the things that are going to help us actually solve this not how do we keep as many viewers as possible and so I've moved away from news and yeah, the, and the social media even, yeah. you know. And the the mainstream media is so disappointing in their um lack of integrity and and their their laziness more than mm-hmm. anything as is, is they just really seem to want uh things that are going to get eyeballs rather than what is the responsible thing to do. And uh, I completely agree. It's 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 pretty frustrating. Actually the best news that I've been getting is uh, I've Spectrum is my cable, and they do uh, a local Spectrum news that automatically turns on when you turn your cable on. And at first, I was annoyed about it. I was mm-hmm. like, "What's this hustle they got going?" <laughs> but it it's turned out to be um, really good and informative, and and definitely uh, local centric. But um, it's I find that that it doesn't depress me. I get enough information, and um, I can watch five minutes of it and feel like, okay, I've done my part to check in and find out if it's every man for himself and I need to buy a rifle. (laughs) (laughs) I think, I think there's, there's two things that you said there that I really like. One is that it's, it's something where you're getting enough news to understand what you need to do. And the second one is the timing. So many people that I talk to daily are spending, or at least they used to, I've, 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 helped them move away from this. But they're spending hours and hours just scrolling and and refreshing and trying to, you know, kind of in that state of panic, just trying to identify, are the numbers going down? Are we flattening the curve? How many people have died? What's changed? You know, and it's this panic and this almost dissociative state that we go into, especially when we're scrolling Mm -hmm. through news stories or social media that that's just awful. And so putting some way that you can actually limit that to five minutes if that's going to work for you. I, I put 30 minutes as my buffer, like at 30 minutes, my social media kicks me out. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's, you know, kind of finding apps or finding some sort of system and and getting away from your phone whenever you can. Because mm-hmm. I know that can feel like your lifeline to the rest of the world, but it it's it's kind of a toxic lifeline. Yeah. And the other thing that, that I, I would suggest is really refrain from feeling like y- you – Trying to make people who differ with you see your point of view mm-hmm. uh, is some semblance of doing your duty. It is not. <laughs> it is you not surrendering to something that you don't have control over, which is a form of insanity. Yeah. And it yeah. it will not help you mentally. It will make you feel even more powerless and jaded. Well, and I think people are so entrenched in what they believe. I think the the stronger move is to, if you're going to post something on your social media, if you're going to make a statement, not respond to someone else's, right. but do you know make your own statements that you vetted it, that you make sure that it's a reliable source, that it's not, you know, the YouTube doctors and the people that are you know creating these, you know, kind of. I don't even know what the right word is, you know, nonsense. I was going to say malarkey, which is much funnier, and I should have said it. Right. And now that I've talked oh about it, now God. I made it totally. Joe, Joe Biden, <laughs> that's the name of his tour, the the no malarkey. It's like, in case there was any question as to whether you are super old and out of touch, you have sealed it. I know. I am so old and out of touch. 
Oh my God. <laughs> just oh me and Joe, God. me and Joe Biden, just, yes. you know, malarkey and shenanigans. Oh my God. <laughs> So is that it for uh, that question? I think that's probably good for that question. Yeah, okay. The next one is a little bit more specific, but I, I think it's a relatively common concern. How do I try to help my partner as she grapples with quarantine-induced depression, try to have compassion for her acting out 12-year-old, and take care of my own shaky mental health all while working from home and having almost no social life? And I think this is pretty common. I think that there's... So many different things that are happening in homes where you've got kids and whether it's small kids running around and not understanding what's going on or 12 year olds that are pissed and acting out because Mm -hmm. this is the socks. And then, you know, also having a, a partner who is really struggling. And I think that there are different ways that different folks have. There are different ways that different folks handle these types of things. So for some folks, it's getting ultra productive and they're they're focusing in on things for other folks they just can't handle it and they're like laying on a couch um or if they get out of bed mm-hmm. and i think there's and everything in between and so when you've got multiple personalities and multiple coping strategies within a household it can be really really hard plus somehow society is expecting us to keep working and to homeschool our kids and to also like learn a new language you know mm-hmm. or something or or like you and I like start learning how to make sourdough bread. Like (laughs) we've got all these new things. And so I think the, the biggest thing that we can do as individuals within our own household is setting reasonable expectations for ourselves. I think so many people have moved into this place of judging themselves regardless of how they're responding. You know, they're kicking themselves while they're down, which is, as you know, very helpful. <laughs> um, but I think the, the other piece of that is really being able to identify what you're actually facing. Because we do have people who have been laid off, who potentially are either madly trying to find jobs or, or kind of rolling with it, and either response makes sense. There are people who are staying at home and continuing to work full time and are extremely busy people who are working from who are at home and not working too much, but are able to keep getting paid, which is beautiful. And so some people have more time, some Mm -hmm. people have less time. And every person has a different situation. And so I think being able to identify what you're actually grappling with, and then set expectations according to that is critical. Uh, I would imagine too, that it's important to kind of triage what you have control over and what you don't have control over. Absolutely. Um, and then say, okay, what can I do? The things I do have control over, how can I bring some type of principled action that involves self-care, compassion for others, not being a doormat, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I think that's really important because I think a lot of folks will focus in on the things that they don't have control over and get really upset or frustrated or take action towards those things and let the other things kind of go fallow. And Mm -hmm. so if you know that you can take charge of getting up and getting dressed in the morning, Mm -hmm. you know, whether or not you shower is up to you. (laughs) But I think it's you can actually take charge of that. You can actually put yourself together. You can put together a routine. You can allow that routine to to be in collaboration with your family so that each family member is is getting at least some of the, the things that they need, you know, whether it's yeah, screen time alone, or, or alone time, or alone making time. so the other person uh, so that you can charge your battery and the other person 
um, for somebody who's a single parent that is feeling drained, um, how, how do they, any suggestions for how they recharge their battery if they, if they can't conceivably get any alone time? I think that there's tranquilizer dart. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. That's, that's one mechanism. Do it from behind. The kid doesn't know what hit him. The kid gets some sleep. <laughs> I think that that there's unique challenges that I think a lot of folks are facing. And I think one of the challenges is you're stuck in a home where you don't get any downtime at all. And I think that they're, depending on the age of the kid, it's alone time during naps. It's alone time after kids go to bed. I mean, for some, it's it's having conversations with your kids and and really being able to reward independent play or independent behavior, so that even if they're still awake, you've you've helped to train them mm-hmm. to play on their own and do things on their own. But there's each family's different, so mm-hmm. it's really hard. And so I think it's sorting through how can I get my alone time. And how do I get it normally? I mean, sometimes it's childcare, and I know that there are different families that are choosing different things about whether or not they bring childcare back into their home safely mm-hmm. or, you know, those types of things. And I think across the country, there's different stages that people are happening in. So people might be able to start taking advantage of that. But if it's genuinely you've got a kid that's really struggling with the pandemic and they need you a lot, I think it's important to make sure that when there is downtime that you've set yourself up to be able to take advantage of it, whether it is getting some extra sleep or reading a book or doing the things that you do by yourself or contacting adults or other people that you would be able to talk to. But it, it's 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 a challenge. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've got other families where you know they're the parents are in the process of divorcing and now they're sheltering in place together. You know, I've got other families where there's, you know, really difficult situations that are happening and it's kind of how do you keep yourself as safe as possible. There are situations that are just, you know, they're survivable, but they're, they're really challenging. And mm-hmm. so for me, it's it's wanting to make sure that folks in those situations know that there are resources that they can take advantage of. But but there are some situations where I don't have any easy answers. Mm-hmm. Uh, two thoughts uh, came to mind uh, around that question, the, the subject of recharging your battery. Uh, and this is one that I often forget to do is just to put on some music. Mm-hmm. Maybe light a candle, something, something to just kind of soothe your, your senses. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, lay in the hammock for a half hour. Uh, and the other thing uh, for for people that have kids, I think would be to just sit down maybe once a day and really listen. Ask your kid, mm-hmm. how are you doing? Yeah, how are you feeling? What's going on? And don't judge. Don't try to change them. Just listen to them. Because I imagine if a kid is feeling trapped and invisible, that has got to be really frustrating. And kids generally don't know how to say, hey, I'm feeling kind of overwhelmed and ignored and my needs aren't being met. It's going to be more like, I hate you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Kids are not going to be able to tell you how they feel. Many kids. I guess there are definitely really good kids that can – not good kids, but like really – emotionally and articulate emotionally intelligent kids that are going to be able to to express themselves but i couldn't have said that better paul i mean i think Mm -hmm. the the biggest piece that 
really is important is recognizing and going back to the question, which is, you know, you've got your your partner who's really struggling, your own mental health is shaky, you've got a 12-year-old acting out. I think it's being able to show that kind of empathy and compassion and making reasonable expectations for for everyone in the house. Because mm-hmm. I think it can be like, I can't deal with anything else, so you need to stop it. Right. And it's it's something where if we can come together and grieve together, because this is a collective right. loss of what life was, what what life is. I mean, we've got kids who are, have lost their school, their classes. They may not see those kids again. You've got people who are not getting graduation. There's so much loss that's happening. So to be able to sit together and just experience that and support each other in families where that's acceptable, obviously, mm-hmm. is is so much stronger in making all of us feel better. And I think that that's, that's huge. Mm-hmm. You also mentioned like laying in the hammock. I've, certainly I have a hammock. I'm glad you have a hammock. Not everybody has a hammock. And mm-hmm. so I think being able to figure out if you can go outside safely mm-hmm. and sit in nature in some way or another, I think that can be hugely impactful because even just getting outside of in natural light with nature, like it, it actually does something for our brain to help us to to cope more effectively. And whether or not we feel good will feel more human mm-hmm. than than sitting in a house all day long, which I think can be very, very overwhelming and anxiety producing because all you're stuck with is your thoughts yeah. or distracting and dissociating and just watching or scrolling or reading or whatever it is. It can be very, very hard to to take care of your mental health if you're not consciously doing the things that are going to help you feel better. Yeah. And uh, another thought I had was, uh, you know, for the parent that finds themselves over their head emotionally and snapping at their kids and barking would be to try to resist the urge to be the drill sergeant and and really try to foster more of a feeling of inviting the other people in your house to be part of a team. Yes. Yes. I think when someone feels like they have to do it themselves and they feel that huge weight and pressure and that no one else is getting it, no one else is going to do it, I have to step up, I have to be the drill sergeant, I think what that causes is less and less buy-in from mm-hmm. the whole household, and people start disengaging. Mm-hmm. And so being able to empower, to, to, to be able to empower every member of the family or every member of the household to take a role in making this better and I think this can happen for even for young kids. I think you just it's got to be age appropriate expectations. Right. And so with with every member of the household being empowered to be a part of the solution, I think it can be a growing experience mm-hmm. for families or, or groups of people who are living together, because I think it's it's something where when you actually each take a role and you actually get to own that role in the household and you're you're bringing something in the family or the the mm-hmm. family the roommates or whoever it is is showing appreciation it can create so much more self-esteem and self-confidence and it also creates this sense of togetherness mm-hmm. and so if one person's like well you're not doing this and you better do that and I'll fine I'll just do it you you get these folks that are just feeling so disempowered and so Judged. Judged. And and when you're feeling incompetent because you're in a situation you've never been in before, which is surviving a global pandemic, that's not going to help. 
(laughs) (laughs) feeling like, oh, no, I'm the asshole in the house, right? Like, I'm the one that's not doing anything. I'm the one that's everybody's pissed at. You know, even if everyone's pissed at everyone, like, there's still going to be that that individualized response, especially for kids Mm -hmm. and especially for folks who don't have the emotional intelligence to be able to see from other people's points of view. Like, if you're just like, they're just being a jerk. It's like, well, no, they're having a hard time. Uh, Something that might be helpful too emotionally for a family would be to maybe sit around the table and one by one uh, just share things that you love. Um, Mm -hmm. And maybe two partners uh, could do not only that, but they could share what fears are are going on inside them. Um, I think it can be really helpful to see that the other person is has a soft side to them is experiencing maybe some of the same things that you are and more importantly to remind ourselves how much love and beauty there is in the -hmm. the world that hasn't changed no and in fact i think with us not being outside and polluting it's there's a lot more beauty in the world (laughs) yeah oh last night sitting in the hammock it was uh the air was so clear and uh it, it just, it, I could just feel it calm me down. Yeah. Uh, what's our next one? Our next one is any tips on de-stressing to cut down on the freaky COVID mares that a lot of folks are having would be helpful. So we've kind of talked about this a little bit. I think when we're looking at COVID mares, I think there's, I'm going to again say decrease your news consumption because it's going to be so focused. You're going to be focusing too much on it and fearful I don't know the current numbers. I'm going to be okay that I don't know the current numbers. And you're talking about nightmares when you sleep? Yes. Yeah. Or even even daymares. Okay. <laughs> that you're so fearful that you're you know just panicked all the time. I think being able to de-stress, I think there's basic sleep stuff that can be helpful, which is get the lights lower at night, make sure that you're doing a consistent bedtime routine, bed is for sleep and sex, you know, making sure that that you're you're going to sleep and waking up at the same time as much as possible. That being said, sleep can suck when you're experiencing losses. Mm -hmm. You're going to end up being awake at two in the morning without an idea of why you're awake. I know my sleep for the first several weeks of being in shelter in place was really disrupted. And as I began to kind of find my rhythm, find my new normal, my sleep got better. Mm. Certainly, if you drink at night, that's going to impact your sleep, and you're probably going to have weird nightmares, too. Um, I think there's a lot of different things that can impact it, but I think part of it is getting to a place where you're focusing on what you can do and focusing on what is enjoyable about this time. Um, if you can find those things, I know mm-hmm. I can, but not everybody has the the privilege that I do. So I, I recognize that. But I think that there's being able to create a, a bedtime routine and being able to do as much as you can to set yourself up for success to sleep. Mm-hmm. And then also making sure that you're doing self-soothing things throughout the day. So like yeah. preventative anxiety reducing things. Yeah. And I would say uh, watching your caffeine intake. Yes. I was I was suffering from insomnia for the longest time and two things that really helped turn it around for me was not having a caffeine after four o'clock and uh taking non THC uh C B D gummies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's it has worked wonders. 
Yeah, I think really paying attention to how you feel when you consume different things. Sometimes even people who are sensitive, you could have chocolate at night and all of a sudden your sleep's jacked up. Right. So I think it's it's sorting out what is it that you are consuming, whether it's food or drink other types of substances, or even what you're consuming last thing at night. Um, um, get your phone away from your bed if you can. Um, don't start scrolling through social media right before sleep. Don't like check your work email right before bed. And I say all those things. And no, I struggle with them too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's like, well, there's just one more thing. And what did everybody say? And did people like my posts? I mean, like I get that there are, are huge challenges in that. But if you can create a kind of a protected space before bedtime, make sure you're paying attention to what you're consuming. Um, It can get better, but also just be very gentle with yourself. We're going through a potentially traumatic experience, a experience that's fraught with loss Mm -hmm. and a lot of grief. And we're going to, we're going to be behaving differently. We're going to be feeling differently. Mm -hmm. What's our next one? Our next one. Ooh, we're moving into therapy. So what are the pros and cons of remote therapy? So I know you love your remote therapy. I do. I do. I'm a big fan of video therapy, and uh, I've I've been doing it for years, and obviously it comes in very handy nowadays. Mm -hmm. Sure. (laughs) Um, So you, you also do it from the other side as the clinician. Yes, and I now also am a, am a client with uh, remote therapy. So I'm doing both. Okay. okay. <laughs> um, I think the pros and cons are unique. But I think the pros right now is the pros right now are, are definitely that we're looking at a safer environment as far as not spreading coronavirus. Mm-hmm. It's keeping consistency. I know for me, the pros prior to COVID were with some of my clients who would travel quite consistently. Obviously, they had to travel within California because mm-hmm. I'm only licensed in California, but they were able to contain, you know, maintain their appointments. I had people move out of the area. I was able to keep being their therapist as long as they stayed within California. And, and some of these things shifted with COVID. There's you know all kinds of laws. So I'm not going to go into that because that's right. way too confusing. But the, the pros are really the consistency. It's being able to maintain a connection. And then I think that the the additional pros depend on your therapist, Mm -hmm. because I think there are therapists who are very comfortable with video therapy. And I think there are therapists who are not. And and for some people, they do audio, Uh, they'll maybe just do it over the phone. And I think it it depends on what you're what you're comfortable with, what you're going to benefit from and what your therapist is comfortable and going to benefit from. Most therapists I know at least do a portion of their clients during this time via telehealth of some sort. So that's telephone or video. And that's kind of at the same time. I know there's also platforms that do texting therapy, which can be Mm -hmm. really helpful for people who are struggling with privacy, can't get 50 minutes to to get Mm -hmm. on a a phone call or a video call. So there's a lot of options and I really want people to take advantage of them right now because it is really challenging. And so the, the benefits are convenience, but there's also from a therapist side, some of the benefits are I'm seeing more of my clients in their element, Mm -hmm. which has been really interesting. I'm I'm able to actually kind of provide solutions in the moment. 
I have some clients who right now they're home, but when they've been in their offices, I've been able, even be, been able to kind of create stress management plans where they put the sticky right in their own office. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's they're there, it's present, we're able to do it. And so some of it feels like it translates a little bit better because you're actually in your own space mm-hmm. and your therapist can see that space. And so the 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 therapy can be very uh, effective, I think, in that way. Cons, sometimes there's things that are missed. Sometimes there's technology drops. It just depends on whatever platform you're using. And so I think it's something where, and, and even sometimes the day, uh, and your Wi-Fi connection. And if you don't have a Wi-Fi connection, that can be you know, a really good yeah. Wi-Fi connection. Some platforms you can you know, call in from your phone on data, some you can't. Like there's, there's technology glitches, but the technology I think is getting better and better. I think for folks who cannot get privacy, I don't know how many sessions I do with people that they're just sitting in their cars right yeah. now <laughs> so that mm-hmm. they can get privacy from their household. But some people can't get that privacy. And that's really, really hard. Some people you can't, you don't feel comfortable because you kind of have marginal privacy, but you don't know if like your parent is Mm -hmm. listening in or those types of things. You might be in an unsafe place and you don't want people to know that you're having therapy. And so if you're doing therapy, especially like a 50 minute session Mm -hmm. in a household where they don't value therapy and they don't want you to be doing it, that can be a hard thing. So I think if you have the wherewithal to get some privacy, have a decent internet or, or data connection and can connect with a therapist who's good with it, I think it's hugely beneficial. Yeah. Um, what are you, what's your experience as a client? Cause I've been a, I've been a client, uh, telehealth client only mm. for about two months. So what's your experience? Uh, my experience is, is overall, uh, very positive. I don't really have, uh, any, any cons. I don't know if I will ever go back to in-person therapy. I just love the convenience of it. And of, of course, a huge portion of that is the fact that I have a great relationship with my therapist. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, but uh, something that I have always found with therapy is a feeling of dread that I have to do it uh, <laughs> because I've made the appointment. And without fail, every time I finish it, I'm glad that I did it. And I have found sometimes the more I dread, the more uh, I benefit from that session. Ooh, and I that's think, interesting. <laughs> I think it's my way of using that bad coping skill I I developed as a kid, which was to just bury things, to compartmentalize it. And when I have an upcoming session, I suppose I know, uh, you know, there's a good chance that door is going to get opened. (laughs) And sometimes I won't bring things up that I, I, in hindsight, well, I should have brought that up. Well, maybe I'll bring it up next week because sometimes there are things that I just don't feel like talking about. I think... What we need to do is is understand that therapy is for you. Mm-hmm. And you can hold boundaries. You don't have to talk about everything. I think that there are therapists there I saw this meme that, you know, that that crazy voodoo crap that my therapist does that I start out talking about pizza and then I end up talking about my trauma. Like, mm-hmm. like, how did that happen? And I, I've definitely had clients who are like, man, I was going to try to avoid talking about that. How did you figure out what I wanted to talk about? I was like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's just wild. Mm-hmm. But I think in truth, and, and this is something that I think we may have talked about on a previous episode, but the thing that I try to tell all of my clients is 
if I ask you a question or if we go down a road and you don't want to talk about it, just let me know. I will ask you why you don't want to talk about it, but I'm not going to make you talk about it. You know, I think it's it's something where being able to feel in control of what you're talking about, what you're working on. I mean, I've had clients who said, yeah, I don't want to work on that right now for X, Y and Z reason. I'm like, that's perfectly reasonable. That's fair. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the impacts of not working on it. And let's look at what else you're, you can work on right now that's going to help you get through to the point where you can work on it. Yeah. You know, and I think it's it's something where people feel like it's going to be this, you know, he- this head shrinking or this, you know, kind of event to dread. And I think there's, you know, psychological reasons we dread it. But I think that it is something where I know there are times when I don't actually dread it because I'm a therapist. So I'm like, oh, I get to go talk to my therapist. I get to I get to relax mm-hmm. <laughs> in the room, so to speak. But I think for me, I usually feel better afterwards. Yeah. Sometimes I feel kind of vulnerable and, and raw afterwards. But I think typically I feel better. And I think part of it is just having a space where someone's going to listen to me mm-hmm. and help me process and think about something in a different way. I, as I think about the the dread that I occasionally have over going to therapy, I think at the root of that so often is that I'm afraid that I one of my little lies to myself is going to be popped or I'm uh, going to have to look at it. I yeah. might that I might hear a truth I don't want to hear or I might get a suggestion about something I need to start doing mm-hmm. or I should start doing that I don't want to do because I imagine it as being boring or <laughs> emotionally difficult mm-hmm. or whatever it is and it's usually my brain catastrophizing things mm-hmm. going into black and white thinking um yeah. I think it's a growing pain and and to me the the experience of dread that you're describing is one is of also anticipation. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes when we label something as a negative emotion, I'm dreading it, I'm scared of it, and and we na- we name it that way, we start kind of building on that aspect of the emotion. I think the other thing which it sounds like there's some anxiety coming up when you're getting ready to go to a session that you're like I got shit to talk about mm-hmm. and I don't want to talk about it. The other thing is anticipation and potentially even excitement. Like I'm facing something. This is an opportunity for growth and it's scary, but it's also exciting. Mm -hmm. And I think when we are able to hold both feelings, it can be hugely powerful because then some of the dread goes away. Some of the fear goes away and we're able to use some of that energy to empower us to say the thing that we're, uh, we're afraid to say. And I think that, that part is the same online or in person. Yeah. Yeah. And I look forward to therapy when I have a little victory to share. Yes. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, those are the best. <laughs> what is our next one? The next one is how do you take advantage, the best advantage of having a virtual appointment? And this is something where there are things for therapists to do because we had a therapist ask and there are things for clients to do and we had a client ask. And so for therapists... Make sure that you've cleared all of your cash. Make sure you've restarted your computer. Make sure that there are no... Your, your, your cash, C-H... C-A-C-H-E. C-A, yes. yes okay. Not like cleared your money. Right. But like, <laughs> yes. 
but make sure that you've actually done the technological things to be able to meet your client with the highest level of, of connectivity possible. Mm-hmm. Make sure that you actually set your, your computer up so that you're looking just below the camera. I always put my, my client's mm-hmm. eyes just below the camera so it actually looks like you're looking at them and not like the corner of the screen. Mm-hmm. Make sure that you're helping them to feel comfortable. Make sure that you've had you know, some sort of an emergency plan, emergency contact, and make sure that you also have a follow-up contact. So like if, if the call is dropped, I'm going to give you a phone call, that right. kind of thing. So that's for the therapist. And I think there's other things and probably beyond the scope, but just those are the basic things. Make sure your stuff works mm-hmm. <laughs> so that you're present and you're available and make sure you have a good seat because you're going to be sitting a long time, even with a really good chair. I still, my butt hurts by the end of the day, I got to be honest. <laughs> On the client side, make sure you're comfortable. Make sure you have privacy. I really recommend wearing some sort of a like earpods or a headset or something so that you have privacy, but it also helps sound mm-hmm. so that you sound good to your to your therapist and your therapist sounds better to you. Mm-hmm. It can be uncomfortable, but I think it's it's the strongest as far as maintaining that. Make sure that you've cleared your cache, restarted your computer, closed other tabs, make sure you have all of your 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 bandwidth is going mm-hmm. towards your therapy appointment and make sure that you're in a place that you can feel private and comfortable to actually have the conversation. I think sometimes there's folks who are like they're in their space and then all of a sudden like somebody walks in and it's like, whoa, I thought we were having a private conversation here. Mm-hmm. Or um, for folks that, you know, are having to use their phone in their cars, you know, like you're going to hold your phone to your face for an hour. So like if you can get some way that you can actually have the phone mm-hmm. held for you, um, it's a- an aspirational thing I would recommend. Yeah. And I think for some folks actually, especially initially, because I think with telehealth, oftentimes I find that the relationship, it still builds and grows. And I think it can, it can grow organically pretty quickly, but for some it grows a little bit slower because there's not that in-person right. feel. And so, so you may want to have things that you want to come to talk about. I mean, therapists can also guide that, but especially if therapists are getting to know you, they, they're going to have to determine how directive you want them to be. They're mm-hmm. going to want to know how much you're willing to kind of talk about that kind of stuff. And so I think if you have some specific things you want to talk about, feel free to, to throw that into the mix. Yeah. So. Um, I feel like there was one other thing I was going to say to clients, but I don't remember what it was. So I'll just leave that there. Wear a wig. Um, you could, if you want to wear a wig. <laughs> yeah. doesn't have to be a rainbow wig. No. Yeah. You, you can also, you know, do with different snap filters and, you know, mm-hmm. background. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> People love seeing your face transformed into a mouse. Oh my God, how did that ever become popular? I don't know. I just had a friend that turned himself into a potato. I'm like, what is this? <laughs> Before I met my girlfriend and I was online, uh, you know, doing the dating app, when somebody's picture would be them looking like a mouse or a rabbit, I would just, I couldn't swipe fast enough. Oh, jeez. Yeah. <laughs> with the, uh, with the, all the different filters and the backgrounds and all those things. To be serious, don't use them. Therapist needs to be able to see your face. They need to be able to see your environment so that they can actually assess you. So try to get to a place where you can be as authentic and present as possible without any filters. Yeah. <laughs> What's our next one? The next one, is, I think that was the ones that was what we had. Okay. Um, but I had one that I wanted to address. Sure. And I think this one, it's a little bit more diffuse, but it's how do we 
as a society understand what's happening. And I know that there's a lot of things we don't know. There's a lot of things that we're not clear on. There's such changing advice and guidance. There's, there's so many things that are happening and it, that makes it all the more overwhelming. And I think you, you kind of mentioned future tripping when we were talking about Mm -hmm. this. And I think the difficulty that we're all facing is that there's a really hard challenge in thinking about planning. Mm -hmm. When we try to plan for the future, I just got notifications that some concerts I was going to go to was canceled. A show I was going to see was canceled. And I was very sad. I, I, this is part of what makes life worth living. Like the things that we can go out and do. I have all these different, you know, kind of events and different things that I was planning for that, you know, I'm going to try to still plan and figure out how to do things virtually and, and that kind of stuff. But there is a lot of pivoting and maneuvering that we're having to do. And when people start judging each other for the choices that they make, when people start beating themselves up, I mean, we talked mm-hmm. about that earlier. When people do this stuff that is inherently critical to themselves and others, it, is, it hinders us so hugely because we can't – we push things to try to, to, to plan and do things because it's like, well, we should know and we should have this happen and this is going to happen and, and creating false binaries. Like either people are going to die or the economy is going to die. It's like right. – or both. Like and, and this is not to be mistaken for being a discerning person. There's a, yeah. there's a line between being discerning and being judgmental. Yes, yes. I think that's a really good line to to understand because I think we we don't want to just say, oh, everything is wonderful and don't Mm -hmm. be a jerk. You know, like that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that this is a really tough time where we have to be able to think. And yet because we're in crisis, it's going to be harder to think. Mm -hmm. And so if we're lashing out at other people versus coming together and talking about how we can support each other to get to the next step, I think that's the part that is really going to keep us sheltering in place for longer. That's going to keep it from Mm -hmm. having a successful economic recovery. Like if we can't get our acts together to support each other and set reasonable expectations for each other, I think that's going to be really, really hard. So should I lower my voice when I'm uh, yelling at people to get off my lawn? Sure. That's a good start. Okay. And I, and I want to acknowledge the, the really tough place that leaders are in right now, because in truth, they're having to make these horrible decisions. They're holding people's livelihoods and their safety in their hands. They're I having, can't imagine. Yeah, they're having to look at all this data and try to sort something out to do something that, you know, at least in, in my lifetime, there's not been something like this that really has hit the whole world. I mean, there's been things that are somewhat similar. And, and yeah, mm-hmm. there's probably things we should have known to do. And that's me politicizing. So I'm going to step back from that. Right. But I think when I when I imagine being in that role, where I'm someone who's having to make these decisions about when things reopen, or even when my business reopens, and what do I do with my employees? I just think about how traumatic and how 
overwhelming that could be because there's oftentimes like you can't even tell people some of the things about why you're making a decision the way you're making because mm-hmm. of confidentiality or, you know, human resource issues or, you know, those kinds of things. I'm just like these folks <laughs> who are making these big decisions and getting criticized by all of us for them. And I think some with good reason, but others right. just because they're navigating really hard times. I think it's something where we need to be able to empower really good leaders to make these decisions and support them and give them the benefit of the doubt and understand that all of us are struggling with things that we just haven't faced as a collective before. Well, what a good note to to end on. Katie, thanks so much for coming by. Uh, Your podcast, uh, where, where can people find it? My podcast is The Modern Therapist Survival Guide. And you can find it at mtsgpodcast.com. And all of my stuff is just on my website, which is katievernoy.com. And Vernoy is V-E-R-N-O-Y. And we'll put the links to all this stuff under the show notes for the, uh, the episode. Katie, thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me, Paul. Love talking to her. Such great advice. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive, a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Uh, let's dive into the, the surveys. You guys got some just uh, some great ones. Some great ones. This is from the Memorable Vacation Arguments Survey. And this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Intimacy Novice. She writes, Last summer, my boyfriend and I went camping together in a secluded spot near a creek. During the day, we set up a folding table and lawn chairs in the creek. We sat in our lawn chairs with our feet in the water, read our books, and shared drinks and snacks. After a couple of beers, we decided to have sex over the folding table. I put my weight on the table, and it immediately collapsed. He yelled at me because his new book got wet, and I yelled at him because the fantasy was ruined. We were both pissy about it for an hour or two. Truly a ridiculous vacation argument. Oh, that is so fantastic. That is such a great... 
great image. Oh, my God. There should be a name for that. What would you call that? A creek bomb? <laughs> it's, like, it's almost like an adult dunk tank. How cool would that be to have uh, like an adult carnival? <laughs> How popular would the dunk tank be if it was two people fucking? In the funk tank. Oh my God, I would love to see it in an adult carnival. On the tilt-a-whirl, you have to try to finish a martini without spilling it. But it wouldn't all be frivolity. Maybe the, on the Ferris wheel, you can't come off it until you finish your taxes. I don't know. I will let you guys know when I finish the uh, my proposal. And I'm going to ask you guys to fund it on GoFundMe. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by uh, August, who identifies as agender. And they write uh, about their OCD. A balloon full of red paint has burst. It is everywhere, and only I can see it. Uh, about, uh, this one doesn't really have a name, but they write, nothing fits. Everything I wear looks like it belongs on someone else. And then a snapshot from their life. Going to lunch with one of my parents, and the waiter chooses not to call me sir or ma'am. Just for a few moments, I exist in a world where my gender is no one's business, and I can simply exist as an agender person without it needing explaining. Uh, without needing explaining it, it anything else. I think that's a typo. Um, then my parents ruining it, jumping to let the waiter know something completely unnecessary and shoving a pronoun at them in reference to me that I want nothing to do with. I didn't wait for them to even bring water. I left money and got out of there. It's not, I've not been to a restaurant, coffee shop, or bar in two years. I'm so tired of living in places where I cannot just exist without someone assuming my gender. It is hard to convey how difficult it is to have to perform this middle ground of gender so others will not assume it. I cannot even go out to buy bread at midnight in my pajamas without the anxiety of being misgendered and going home feeling frustrated with my body and validating who I am. I just want to exist and it not be something I have to explain or justify or fight for when I'm harming no one. I can go home and feel at peace with my body until someone uses it to justify calling me something that I am not. I just want peace. And I have no idea if the world has enough room for people like me to just be able to go to the store for bread at midnight and not have my identify my identity invalidated by well-meaning strangers because I've not performed being in between well enough. Thank you so much for sharing that. I, I cannot imagine what that struggle is like and the feelings that that must come up uh doing that and i i would love to know as a society how we can help what what the correct uh if there is any one correct way when we are not sure of someone's gender do we would do we ask them before we uh, address them uh, what th what their pronouns are um i'm not sure i'm not sure but i'd love some feedback on that and thank you for sharing that this is from the happy moment survey filled out by astro neurotic 
And they write, I love driving through the winding mountain roads in the redwoods in a fast car and not getting stuck behind anyone for the entire drive on a beautiful day with the sun peeking between the clouds. Wow, that is extremely specific. And I love when you guys get really specific about your happy moments or your loves or anything. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by uh, Daniel and about his major depressive disorder. He writes, it's like a giant forcing his hand on your body constantly. Oh, that, is, that is such a great description. Thank you for that, Daniel. From the Awfulsome Moment survey, Diogenes, I think I'm pronouncing that right, uh, he writes, My beautiful cat Margot passed away last year at the ripe age of 19. In her few final years of her life, she sometimes lost her appetite and began to come down with some kitty dementia. Naturally, we were at the vet a lot, and Margot ended up with some prescriptions that helped her eat more and to help with how confused and upset she would get when she woke up at night. I had to trick her into eating the little pills and ended up with a lot left over due to her inconsistency in taking them, but they did the trick. It definitely helped ease her symptoms. I promise this is relevant to the story. Shortly after she died, I went through a major breakup, lost my job, and had to move to a different city. Along with these changes came much-needed intensive therapy and visits to a psychiatrist who started me on some meds for depression and some other issues, brand names Remeron and Neurontin. A few days ago, I found one of the old veterinary pill bottles in a moving box and took a look at the drug names, mirtazapine and gabapentin. Those who are pharmaceutically inclined may have already realized this and it hit me like a train. My psychiatrist has me on the exact same drugs the vet had prescribed for my cat. Now when I take my meds, I do a little cheer with Margot's spirit and it always makes me laugh. They say pets and their owners get to look alike. My cat and I seem to have taken that to a whole new level. Thank you for that, Daniel. Love. I love the silver linings of things, especially when they're bittersweet, because there's something about the bittersweet that feels feels so real. Somebody talked to, I don't know if it's in the, one of the surveys that I have uh, slated to, to read in today's episode, but somebody talked about being depressed, walking down a beach on a beautiful afternoon. And I thought, oh my God, I've experienced that, that that weirdness, that collision between the inner and outer. And the temptation is to then blame yourself for not being able to appreciate something. And, um, you know, if I've learned anything in my, my years on this planet, it is to start being more kind to myself. As I said many times on the podcast, nobody has ever shamed themselves into being the person they want to be. This is from the struggle, struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Pepper Potts. And uh, a snapshot from her life. I feel disconnected from my boyfriend because of my depression and body hatred. I feel like he has taken a liking to a new girl at work, but I can't tell if it's a justified assumption or if I'm just seeing things that aren't there because we aren't in a good place. 
but I can't talk to him or anyone about it because I don't want to seem crazy. So instead, I'm crying in a stall at work and trying to pull it together enough to ask my supervisor to go home. I'm also scared my boyfriend wants to break up, but won't because he doesn't know what I'll do. I don't want to lose my job, but also I kind of don't want to be alive either. Either way, I don't put that on him. Thank you for sharing that, and I'm so sorry that, that you are going through this. And I just had a couple of things that I wanted to share. The first one being, you know, you write that you you can't tell if it's a justified assumption. You know, one of the things that I learned with, with my therapist is to ask myself, what are the facts on the ground? You know, one of the things we love to do when we're in pain and, you know, self-consumed around that pain is to mind read and to extrapolate and to get into black and white thinking. And it is a waste of time to do that. It's so natural to want to go there because we feel like that's our way of preparing or controlling. But it doesn't, in the in the long run, it doesn't work. Um, and you write, I can't talk to him or anyone about it because I don't want to seem crazy. So instead I'm crying in a stall at work. You can talk to someone about this. Might not be him, but, you know, the side effect of not opening up to somebody, not letting that out, is crying in a stall at work. And worse, feeling alone, isolated, not wanting to be alive. Those are some pretty big side effects of holding all of that in. So what would the side effects be of talking someone in a support group or a therapist I think a lot smaller than the side effects that you are experiencing right now but sending, sending you some love and good vibes this is an awful moment filled out by today I fucked up again and she writes, I've wanted to purchase a legitimate sex toy for a while now, not just the tiny bullet vibrator that I bought a while back. I decided to do some looking around online. I found a reputable online store and found one that looked interesting and got all the way to the checkout page before the anxiety really kicked in. See, I'm 21, but I still live with my parents, and I decidedly prefer that they not know I ordered myself a vibrator from the internet. Luckily, this service is discreet and sends all the products under a company moniker, but I was still really scared. So I went to the website Seven Cups in the hopes that I could just vent a little so my anxiety would taper off. I went ahead and ordered the vibrator and proceeded to chat for a minute with a listener on Seven Cups about it. They only answered in very short, vague replies and I knew they didn't know what to say, so I ended the conversation pretty quickly. It wasn't until then that I checked their profile and saw that they had only just become a certified listener for the site one day prior. So to whoever had to listen to me ramble about being scared my parents would find my new sex toy, I am so deeply sorry. P.S. I was also the listener who wrote in about my mom seeing me buy a vibrator at Spencer's that one time. I think the universe is trying to tell me something. I would, I would, uh, I think you're being hard on yourself. And who knows, maybe that person was turned on by the idea of you getting a vibrator and the short replies were because they were masturbating. 
I am not sure that would be soothing to, <laughs> to hear that. I think that might be disturbing. This is the body, uh, from the body shame survey filled out by a trans man who calls himself Crispy Critters. And he writes, as a trans man, I have a very complicated relationship with my body. I've been on testosterone for over a year, and many things about my body have changed in ways that make me more comfortable with it. I've grown facial hair, and my jaw has squared out a bit. I've gained more muscle, and I've lost weight. My body still feels like it doesn't belong to me, though. And now that society sees me as a man, I feel like the sexual trauma of my past doesn't belong to me either, but my body still remembers it. And I have trouble granting others access to my body, even if I want to. Before transition, I also was focused on my weight and trying to become smaller from the time I was like 14. When I started testosterone, the weight started melting off and I reached a weight that's been my goal for years. I thought that would make me feel good, but I didn't have to work for it. It's just It just kind of happened and that feels unfair to the girl who I was who tried so hard and fought her body to lose weight. And now that I'm on testosterone, I feel like one of the guys who I always resented who could just lose weight without trying because of their body chemistry. This has led to a recurrence of my eating disorder where I restrict to feel like I'm at least earning this weight loss and then I binge because I hate myself. Wow, that is that is a lot going on inside you. And at the risk of sounding like a broken record, please be kind to yourself. You know, you, you mentioned the girl who you were who tried so hard. Do you think that girl would want you beating yourself up in the present moment? Or do you think that girl would be rooting for you? and cheering you on and celebrating your victories. I I think the answer is pretty clear to that one. Thank you for sharing that. This is from the love survey filled out by a person who calls himself awkward person gently abiding. And uh, I love going to the Japanese convenience store and buying snacks they eat in Tokyo. It could just be me, but when I handle them and eat them, I feel like I'm in Tokyo. I'm nowhere near Tokyo. I like Tokyo. And that was filled out by Ernest Hemingway. Uh, Going from standstill to terminal velocity to leveling out on a skateboard, on a hill, on a bike path while listening to music on a radio on a sunny Saturday afternoon. Oh, that is a great one. I love that feeling of speeding on a skateboard or ski skis or a bike or you're just starting to scare yourself the look on a woman's face when she realizes i've worked out her actual need either through my education or just listening to her or from winging it it's like she is switching on after days of having been ignored by the world gives me a profound sense of self-respect when she addresses me after that Going to the library and just enjoying the building. My fondest childhood memories are of trips to the library. I traveled across the continent once just to revisit the library I went to as a small child. Now libraries are sort of like churches to me. I love the air quality in libraries. I love letting random books catch my eye and then keep me in cultivated quiet for hours. 
I love searching for and requesting books and then getting a notification to come and collect them. What could be better? That is so great. And uh, when children randomly wave at you or reach out and verbalize something to you, even if you're a stranger in the street, I love it when children have the horse sense to size you up in the moment and trust you enough to share spontaneous stuff with them. Oh, that is a great one. That is a great one. This is a really intense and uh, graphic survey that involves uh, childhood sexual trauma. So uh, some of you might might want to skip it. This this is uh, filled out by a guy who calls him. This is from the babysitter survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Jittery Jake, and he is in his thirties. He identifies as straight. He was raised in a totally chaotic environment. And he writes, um, A little bit of everything happened before the age of maybe eight. I'm 40 years old now, and up till a few years ago, I overlooked things that happened. After all, it was girls blessing me with the privilege of sexual experimentation. The majority of the time, I thought I was, quote, lucky and anticipated what may happen the next day. I somewhat told my mother a few years ago, but left out details. She had a casual response. Pretty much, mm, I had no clue. I recently visited my younger sister who went through complete hell as a child, was a victim of extensive sexual trauma. I told her more than I have anyone else besides maybe my wife. And I absolutely believe sexual abuse fueled my extreme hypersexuality. Uh, oh, I, uh, I forgot to mention that uh, he said that while he was being babysat, uh, there were sexual acts. Uh, remember, remembering these things, what feelings come up? Mostly confusion as to how my mother could be so naive and basically unconcerned for my welfare. Do you feel any damage was done? Some situations with other kids that were being watched may have somewhat been kind of natural if we weren't being coached on what to do to each other by our caretakers. Have your experiences influenced how, if you're a parent, how you view your children being babysat? It did make me, quote, woke at age 13 when my sister was born. I did everything I could to protect her till she was taken by the state at age five. When I had my own daughter, I vowed to never get, quote, babysitters. Pretty much the only people I trusted with her was her mother and great-grandfather. Have you ever been the victim of sexual abuse outside of events here? He writes, and this is the part that's, that's heavy, my mom's stepmother's sister also started molesting me as a young child, which followed into my teenage years. She recently died. Instead of grieving, it opened up a multitude of suppressed memories of when I was like eight and we lived with her. She would have me, quote, hang out with her while she listened to records in her silk gown, smoked weed with me. She would open her gown and have me watch her masturbate, then ask me to help her. It's crazy that I forgot all about fisting my grandmother's sister my whole life. My main memories were from working with her at a family-owned business around the age of 15 and her giving me blowjobs every time we were alone. Wow. 
That is heavy. Thank you. Thank you for delving into that and, and sharing that with us. Uh, to the question, do you have any comments to make the podcast better? I think you should ask every guest, what's your favorite car and what was your first car? I don't know. I think that's a little personal. Thank you for that, Jake. And I, I hope you're on the, the path to healing because, wow. This is from the love survey filled out by uh, a person who calls themselves easily forgotten and always abandoned evil queen. And they write, when I've spent all day stuck in my mind and I'm drowning in self-doubt, feeling completely unloved and can't stop focusing on all the hurts in my life. Then, as if she can feel me from across the house, my 13-year-old daughter comes up for no reason at all and gives me a big old hug where she rests her head on my shoulder and we stand completely attuned to each other. At that moment, my brain clears. My anxious heart calms and I start to breathe again. For the first time all day, I'm in complete peace. The hug always ends with an I love you, Mama, and I love you too, my boo. That is happiness at its finest. She is my greatest blessing. Wow, that is beautiful. And I, and I hope that your daughter isn't emotionally caretaking you, sensing that she needs to emotionally support you because that can get really complicated and kind of damaging for the kid if they feel like they have to be the parent uh, emotionally, but it, it doesn't. It doesn't sound like that. This is from the love survey filled out by Gore Pipa, and they write: "I love the way my significant other becomes so boyish when he gets to work on a project he likes. The way his curly hair covers his forehead and his hazel eyes just stare so intently at his work. I love the way my dog looks at him like he's the midsummer's day sun and trots over to him every time she sees him." I love that my heart feels so warm around him. Thank you for showing me peace. That is such a good feeling. And you don't even have to say anything when you just look at your significant other and uh, and you just feel that feeling of connection and and warmth. And then finally, this is... Uh, from the memorable vacation argument survey filled out by Birdie. And uh, she writes, I don't remember whose stupid idea it was, but a few years ago, my family decided to vacation together. Insert scream here. Our group consisted of my parents, my sister, and her husband, and my menagerie. Hubs, bio daughter, and stepdaughter. Yup, eight people total. We drove, insert louder scream here, Driving from Texas to California, we stopped somewhere in Arizona for lunch. Someone made the comment that my dad should no, no longer be the primary driver for the rest of the vacation. At the time, he was in his early 60s and his driving was not good. And as passengers, we did not feel safe. He threw a fit and walked away like a two-year-old. He did not come back. He left his cell phone and wallet in the rental van we were in. My mother made the executive decision that we would go on without him. We found out the next day that he had made it home somehow. The rest of the trip went off, went off without a hitch. When we, when, 
When we took my mom home, we discovered that my dad had broken a window to gain access to the house, since my mother had the house keys, and refused to discuss his horrible behavior. To this day, almost five years later, he refuses to talk about it. My mother considered divorcing him, but won't say what happened to change her mind. It should be noted that our family has vacationed together for my entire life, and this is the first and last time anything like this has happened. It continues to be something that no one talks about. My family is weird. That one. Oh my God. Holy shit. That is... Woo! You talk about talk about bringing luggage to and from a vacation. Holy shit! Your your dad is a tightly tightly wound dude, and I wonder what what fear is going on inside him. You know, because for somebody to react the way he did, that is clearly touching on some deep deep rooted fear. I suppose it's that his his youth is is slipping away, you know, maybe that he's becoming less useful, that he's losing his power or his identity as, you know, a, a caretaker or a, you know, some type of guidance, or he just really, really likes driving. Oh. I remember when my grandmother, right before she lost her license, my parents were out of town. I think I was in high school and we had to go to the store. And I remember thinking, I think this is going to be kind of sketchy, but I didn't say anything. And she, we were at a stop sign and the traffic coming the other way did not have a stop sign. So they're going like 40 miles an hour. And a car is maybe 50 yards away from us, coming full speed. And my grandmother just pulls out <laughs> right in front of it. I do not know how it didn't hit us, but um, we got to the grocery store and I put my grandmother down. I euthanized her right there on the sidewalk. And people said, why did you just euthanize your grandmother? And I said, she just almost got in a car accident. And they said, oh, okay just checking and that's how i want to end the podcast oh i hope you guys are hanging in there i know that uh, is a bit generic and perhaps a bit trite but i i do think about you guys during the week and, and people that aren't connected to the podcast too and oh it's such a complicated time let's not go down that fucking rabbit hole paul sweet mother of god Let's not take a rocket to planet fuckface right now. I hope you heard something that lifted you up or brought you comfort or turned a light bulb on in your head. And I hope that you remember that you are, you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I know in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. 
But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. <laughs> AutoTrader.